Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Paul Mumaw. I'm the lead pastor here at Genesis. And uh, if you brought a Bible with you today, I want to invite you to take it and turn to Matthew chapter 5. If uh, you want to use one of the Bibles uh, on the floor around you, uh, page 677, or uh, we think the Version app is a great app too if you want to follow along uh, with your phone. Again, Matthew uh, chapter 5. Now, as Ben mentioned, pointed out to you, maybe you've received, uh, when you came in today, uh, you should have received a piece of chocolate. I want to invite you to take that right now and just kind of hold it in your hand if you have it. Uh, and for those of you that have eaten it, I'm going to ask you to stand. No, I'm just kidding. We won't do that. We won't ridicule you or humiliate you in this moment because we're a place of, of grace uh, and mercy. But uh, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take it and open it. All right. This is a, this is a great moment, the moment that maybe many of you have been looking forward to. But uh, open it up. Uh, and just kind of hold it in your hand for a second. And for those of you that have ever craved chocolate or uh, craved chocolate at all, man, you're loving a moment like this. And uh, so maybe kind of take it and just kind of feel it with your fingers. Uh, you can do this if you want. You can kind of take it and go ahead and touch it to your tongue, you know, just kind of tease yourself a little bit with that chocolate. But uh, finally, the best moment again. And if you, if you love chocolate, you can go ahead and put it in your mouth and you can eat it. You can listen to me eat it through my microphone. Here's what I learned from the first service. In the first service, I grabbed a piece of chocolate with caramel in it. And it wasn't about until about 20 minutes into my message, I was able to finally get all the caramel uh, out of my teeth. So I chose a little more wisely this time, but it's still kind of hard. You can take a little longer if you want, but you love chocolate you know what it's like to hunger it maybe you've got something else you know another type of food or snack uh, that you love we all know what it, it's like to thirst for something too and uh, if you ha have ever really exerted yourself if you run races if you uh, play a particular sport maybe you like working out on the in the yard even on a really hot day or uh, if you enjoy something like spicy food we all know what it's like to thirst uh, for something and then the moment you finally get a drink to satisfy that thirst. Well, with this fourth beatitude today, uh, Jesus talks about hungering and thirsting for something uh, that might not be as familiar to us, but is so important. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now, many of you come in here today and maybe you feel something like this because your soul is hungry uh your thirst uh, your heart is thirsty or you know maybe you'd say maybe you would realize that you've got this insatiable desire for something but you don't really know what it is and so we'll go looking uh to everywhere and to everything uh looking to satisfy those thirsts but it just always seems like the grass is always greener someone else or that person is much happier than i am or everyone you know seems to have something that you don't and the sad part is is that this longing for every single one of us is most likely God and the desire for eternity that he has placed in our hearts and he's calling out to us but what we do is we turn away or we go looking to other things we go looking to these other peeling things to satisfy uh, this thirst in our life it, it's kind of like this buffet um, that will remain nameless uh, that I visited with my son in his fifth grade class uh, a couple of months ago and uh, we went, and I didn't go with high expectations. Um, and even though there's something like 300 or so choices of what you could eat, and they use fancy lights and everything to make it look appealing, you just can't help but, but try something and try a little of this and a little of that, and it's just not very satisfying, all right? There is nothing that will absolutely or completely satisfy you. And in life, you know, there are just so many things that are like this. I mean, we try and we experiment with so much, and we go looking to other things 
uh, to satisfy us. We'll look to different relationships. We look to things like sex, uh, to an addiction to drugs or alcohol, uh, to another job, or we'll go searching or pursuing another degree, or uh, we'll put all of our hopes and efforts into a kid's sports team or, uh, you know, decorating your home. We go look into so many things to satisfy our hunger, to satisfy the thirst in our life. And everything, here's the problem, with everything you try, it ultimately is going to leave you feeling empty because lust only leads to guilt and shame. And drugs and alcohol take you away only to per- parachute you right back into your old life when the effects wear off. The pursuit of things is a temporary satisfier that keeps building our appetite for more and more and more. It's kind of like what the author C.S. Lewis once said when he wrote, he says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Let me just ask you this today. What about you? How hungry are you today uh, for something more in your life? What what are those things that, that you thirst for? Is there a thirst in your heart that you haven't been able to satisfy. Here's the truth for us. Our only hope is in Jesus Christ. Your only hope for satisfaction in this world is within a relationship with Jesus Christ. He is the only one that can truly satisfy uh, you and me. And what I want you to see in this fourth beatitude today is that he is inviting us. He is calling us to a way of life that is pleasing and glorifying to him. It's a life of righteousness, a life of obedience, and it's a life that can not only make a difference in our lives, but also make a difference in this world. And uh, so if you're new with us, we're in the fourth week of this series called uh, Beautiful. We've been looking at the Beatitudes of Jesus. These are eight statements uh, that Jesus made at the beginning of of one of his most famous sermons, the Sermon on the Mount. And, And with these statements and with the Sermon on the Mount as a whole, Jesus paints a picture for us of what a beautiful life Uh, is really like. And so far we've spent uh, the first three weeks with three statements. Uh, And one thing that is interesting about the Beatitudes as a whole, all eight of them, is that there's actually an identifiable pattern uh, to them. Uh, The first three, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, and blessed are the meek, help us understand who we are in relationship to God. Uh, They remind us that we are nothing without Him and that He loves us as we are and not as we should be. And they show us that our only hope in this world is to be fully and completely dependent on Him for all things. The last four, and we'll take a look at those starting next week, are all about how to live in this world and especially and specifically how to love our neighbor as Jesus commanded. And so the fourth beatitude, again, the one we look at today, sits right in the middle of these two parts and really serves as a bridge uh, to both of them. And so in Matthew 5, 6, Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and then this promise that they will uh, be filled. Now, we have to ask, so what does it mean for you and me to hunger and thirst for righteousness? Well, last week, uh, we went back to Psalm 37 to discover a little more uh, about what it means uh, for Jesus to call us to this life of meekness. Now, unfortunately for us, with Beatitude number four, he's not quoting directly from the Old Testament. But fortunately, uh, he used the same word for righteousness in at least five different places in the Sermon on the Mount, and so we can look to a few of these examples uh, for clues. Um, One of those being the next place that Jesus used the word righteousness is over in verse 10. And so if you're in your Bible, if you want to look over to verse 10, uh, we'll look at this beatitude in a few weeks. But in Matthew 5.10, Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, the word righteous means right living. Uh, The word righteous in God's eyes has everything to do with a behavior uh, that is morally and justifiably right. 
It's our right living before God. The righteousness Jesus describes here means to orient every part of your life around God and His will. And what's interesting about living righteously is what Jesus says will result from it. Because will we be complimented? Uh, Will we receive praise or honors or applause for the way that we live? Jesus hints that we will be persecuted instead for our righteous living. And how do we see that today? I mean, even if you step back today and consider these things, I mean, if you're a parent and righteousness means uh, stepping in and saying, you know what, I prefer that my kid didn't, you know, not participate in that event or or watch that show or that movie, or again, I don't feel comfortable uh, with something like that. It could result in in something as simple, but uh, again, as challenging as a funny look from another parent or a remark from a teacher, it might mean uh, your kid enduring some of the, uh, the feelings of being left out from something. Uh, If you're a a young couple and you're dating, righteousness might mean boundaries you establish to maintain sexual purity uh, in your relationship. And so uh, if you're choosing to live apart right now until your wedding day, I mean, you might be enduring some of the criticism uh, for others that would say that you're crazy uh, for that. Uh, Righteousness for for you as a student might mean uh, enduring some of the humiliation and antagonism from a prof. Uh, at, at school for what you think or what you've been taught to believe or uh, for those of you that travel with your job. Righteousness might mean drawing a line when it comes to what you would say is right and wrong uh, when you're away on business. Uh, righteousness is choosing to live according to God's will and, and vision for us. And Jesus says, you will be persecuted for your righteousness, but don't worry, you'll be blessed. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in a few weeks. But Jesus adds to this in verse 11. In verse 11, he says, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Now, unlike verse 10, uh, when Jesus reminds us that we will be persecuted for how we live, here he shows us that we are ultimately persecuted because of what? Because of him. He says, you're going to face all sorts of evil and all sorts of persecution because of me. It's ultimately because of your association to me. Now let's look at another example or another reference to righteousness. And this is where it gets a little interesting and maybe a little more challenging to understand, but I want you to get this. I, I want us to see this together and how important our righteousness is before God. In Matthew uh, 5.20, again, just a few more verses, this same Sermon on the Mount, Jesus shares with these same people. He says, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, say what you want to say about the Pharisees or what you've heard of the Pharisees, but they were some righteous sort of people, all right? They were always seeking to do right, at least according to what the law said, and they knew every piece of the law, every dot and every tittle, and in fact, the 613 laws uh, that make up our Old Testament weren't enough for them, and so they added more to them. They came up with additional laws uh, to live by. It kind of reminds me of this sandwich shop. Uh, we used to live in Michigan, and there was this sandwich shop where I really liked to get a sandwich from, and, and I would always look for their coupons or their deals or whatever, but it just never failed. Every time, it seems like I'd go in, you know, on a Wednesday with a coupon for a buy a, free sa- buy a sandwich, get a drink for free, and I'd hand over the coupon only to hear, oh, yeah, we only honor that on Thursdays. Yeah, you know, that's a Thursday only sort of a coupon. It just seemed like every time I went in, no matter the deal, there was always some fine print that I wasn't seeing, you know, that excluded me from using this particular coupon. Well, these 613 laws, I mean, the Pharisees did everything they could to live by them. And of the laws, uh, there were different laws. There were those laws that were called the ceremonial laws. 
And the ceremonial laws had to do with the people of Israel and requirements when it came to worship and their offerings and their sacrifices and rituals, uh, the do's and don'ts of the temple. Uh, Again, these were specific laws to the nation of Israel, the ceremonial laws. There were also the civil laws, and these were laws regarding inheritances and boundaries and how to eat and and dress and and diet. And again, these laws were specific to the nation of Israel, And, and this time they were the civil laws. And the good news for us is that when Jesus Christ came and when he gave his life, he offered a new covenant for us as Christians. And that means that we were freed from adherence to these ceremonial and civil laws. But there was a third category, a third category of laws called the moral law. And these are the direct commands of God. And the moral law includes things like the Ten Commandments and other laws that reveal the nature of God and his will and his desire for us. And Jesus didn't abolish these laws. In fact, you could say that he really raised the bar for us as followers of Christ with his teaching. And he raised the bar, as we see, with the Beatitudes and with the Sermon on the Mount, where he paints a picture for us of God's ideal, his vision for your life, his vision for my life, this beautiful life that we've called it. And we see this all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. You know, in places like Matthew 5, 21, when Jesus continues, he says, you've heard it that it was said to the people long ago. Again, so he's making a reference to the past. You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Again, this is a law. But I tell you, he says, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, which was a, uh, an insult, uh, sort of a word in their time, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. So here's the thing. Where the ceremonial and civil laws no longer apply to us, the moral law still does. And not because we gain salvation by following the moral law, but again, it's because it's the way of life that God expects from his children. And so for you, now when someone asks you, you know, why do Christians still follow the Ten Commandments, but, uh, you know, but, but eat bacon, you know? I mean, you, you've got sort of an answer. You know, we're not under that sort of law anymore. When someone says, why do you still care about the Old Testament commands when it comes to marriage and sexual immorality, but it's okay to wear a cotton poly blend, all right? You can say, well, you know, we're not, we're not under, you know, that portion of the law anymore. We're not bound by the ceremonial and civil laws, but when it comes to the moral laws, Jesus makes it very clear that as Christians, we are called to a higher standard of living. In fact, the whole Sermon on the Mount removes the mystery for us as Jesus gives us example after example of how he wants us to live. Examples like when he says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I'm going to tell you, I don't even want you to lust. Don't let let lust enter into your life. You've heard it say, say, don't kill, but I, I don't want you to hate either. Or when it comes to marriage, you know, Moses allowed for divorce, but Jesus has avoided at all costs with the possible exception if someone else commits adultery. Jesus says, don't just keep your promises, but I want you to be the kind of, of, of person that doesn't even need to make promises. I want your yes to always be yes and your no to always be no. I want you to be a person of integrity. Uh, Jesus said, even though you are taught an eye for an eye, I want you to be someone that turns the other cheek instead. And Jesus said, I don't want you to just love your neighbor, but I want you to love your enemy too. It's easy to love your neighbors, but I want you to love your enemy too, and I want you to pray for those. I want you to pray for those who persecute you. Again, talk about raising the bar for us, this beautiful life. And with the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus describes this beautiful life that he has called you and me and to his children. And with the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you know what, this is righteousness. This is righteous living. This is the life that I'm living. This is the life that I'm calling you to. This is the righteousness that I want you to hunger and thirst for. 
Here's the thing. What's God's will for your life and for my life? It's righteousness. It's right living before God. And Jesus says, I want your driving passion and for your heart to be all about following me and nothing less than total obedience. He says, I want you to hunger and thirst to live this way. And how important is it to God? Well, Jesus said, I want your righteousness to surpass that of the Pharisees. Now, how? Like, I mean, isn't that a call to perfection? I mean, I don't know about you. I know me. I know my thoughts. I know my ways. I know my tendencies. I mean, how can I possibly live by this standard? Well, if there was one thing that the Pharisees were good at, they were good at keeping all the rules. But Jesus says, my righteousness must surpass now their righteousness. Again, how is that even possible? Well, here's the thing. Here's where the Pharisees failed. They did a great job of taking care of the outside, of doing the things that everyone else could see and assume. But unfortunately, they failed at taking care of the inside. They failed at taking care of their heart. See, while God is very concerned about how we live and what others can see, he knows that our right living is only going to flow from a right heart. And the only way to have a right heart is to turn to the Lord. And the only way to truly live righteous in this world is to look to Jesus, the one who lived a righteous life, that we can do the things that even he has done. Again, the only way to live a truly righteous life is to be completely and absolutely dependent on God for all things. That's what we've been talking about for these last few weeks. Again, you can see the bridge now as we start more uh, of these action-oriented beatitudes. But here's the thing for me. I, I am so thankful that in the very next chapter, Jesus reminds us of what's most important, and he shows us the key to righteous living. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, Jesus says this for us. He says, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to seek first his kingdom. Make that your priority in life. And notice what it says, his righteousness. What's the righteousness we must crave? It's the righteousness of God. See, these words remind me that he has something that I need. He has something that will work uh, in my life and, and for your life. And when Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, he wasn't placing impossible demands on you and me. Now, impossible on my own and by myself? Yes, absolutely. Through Christ, not impossible. See, in Christ, I can live for him. In Christ, you can live for him. In Christ, you and I, we can live a righteous life, but we must seek his righteousness first. We must hunger for his righteousness, and there is a righteousness that we can attain, and it comes to us in at least three ways if you're taking notes, and the first one is this. We're just going to call it a righteousness through faith, and let me just tell you right up front that this is most important. This is the most important because true and perfect righteousness before God is not something that we can attain on our own. The standard is too high. But the good news for us is that true righteousness is possible for us, but only through the cleansing of sin by Jesus Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We have no ability on our own to achieve the righteousness that God uh, desires and wants from us in and of ourselves, but Christians uh, possess the righteousness of Jesus Christ, as the Apostle Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, when he said that God made him, he made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And friends, this is the amazing truth. Like, this is the good news for us, that on the cross, Jesus exchanged our sin for his perfect righteousness, so that one day we can stand before God. 
And when we stand before God one day, he will not see our sin, but Jesus will represent us and God will see his righteousness uh, for our lives. We, uh, back before we had children, uh, my wife and I had the chance to take a, a vacation, kind of a dream vacation of sorts, uh, to Cancun. And we had some friends uh, that had moved to Cancun uh, to help run a series of resorts that were there. And so when we arrived, we quickly started receiving the VIP treatment. All right, and that meant that we got a fabulous room that we could never afford uh, overlooking the ocean and people called us by name and there was all of this hospitality and we got some time on a private yacht and it had nothing to do with who we are. All right, it had nothing to do with my name or who I am whatsoever. It had everything to do with who represented us, who we were the guests of on that particular uh, vacation to Cancun. And you know, every one of us, the truth is, every one of us will stand before God one day. And the only thing that will matter is whether or not you trusted Jesus Christ with your life. It'll have everything to do with what you did with Jesus, uh, his life, his salvation for you while on this earth. And if you've trusted Jesus Christ with your life, in that moment, Jesus will represent you. And God will see him and he'll see his righteousness for your life. And the promise that we have is that you will live eternally with God in heaven. But in that moment, sadly, for those who are not in Christ, there will be no one to represent them. And standing alone that day will mean an eternal separation from God in hell. And so let me just ask you this. Where do you stand with God today? Where do you stand with, with Jesus right now? I mean, have you trusted Jesus Christ uh, with your life and with your salvation? And if you have, his righteousness is yours. It belongs to you. You're forgiven and you are guaranteed the promise, the eternal promises of God in heaven. But if you've never trusted Jesus Christ with your life, you can do that today. Uh, you, you can do that today. You can pray right now and even ask God, God, give me the faith to trust you. Give me, forgive me of my sins and, and start living for him in this world. We can live righteous lives only because first of what Jesus has done for us. And that leads to the next kind of righteousness that Jesus wants us to hunger for. And that's what we're going to call a righteousness through sanctification. All right. And this is a desire in us to live for him, uh, to do what's right and to live by what God commands. It's a righteousness achieved through sanctification. Now, sanctification is a fancy word that just simply means change uh, or transformation. It's a work that the Holy Spirit uh, does in us. Notice that. It's a work that the Holy Spirit does in us to change us, to become more like Jesus. But it happened overnight. Uh, it's a lifelong process, and it's a process whereby as we trust Him and as we surrender our lives to Him, uh, like the song we sang just a moment ago, He changes us and He sanctifies us. But God doesn't force that righteous work on us. We have to cooperate with His work uh, in us. Uh, it's kind of like I, I visit a, a chiropractor from time to time. Uh, I have found that with running there, and probably age two, uh, there's some pain in my back that has developed some lower back pain. And so I have found in visiting uh, this particular chiropractor that there are some things that he can do for me. There are some stretches that he can do for me that will relieve the pain and uh, give me a sense of relief. But what I've also discovered is that the long-term uh, health or the long-term uh, you know, sense of healing that I feel has everything to do with how much I'll listen uh, to what he tells me 
to do. And so there are uh, certain stretches that he will tell me to do every day. And there are certain things that he'll ask me to do even before a run and after a run. And as I do these things and as I avoid some of the habits, you know, that he's told me to avoid, I I have found that there is some long-term effect from that. Well, when we trust Christ, there is an eternal work that God does in our lives that no one can take away, a work that only he can do. But the thing is that we're not off the hook at that point. As Christians, we're called to live for God. We're called to a higher standard. He expects nothing less than total obedience from us, and that's what Jesus wants us to hunger for, total obedience and righteous living. But this righteous living, this kind of righteousness, presents a serious challenge today. And maybe a serious challenge for some of you because you might have to ask yourself, you know, how, how much do I want it? Do I even believe that? How much do I want the goodness or the righteousness of God in my life? Am I, am I interested in living according to the ways of this world or will I commit myself to living for God, even if it means or involves persecution? I have a feeling, I believe that as Christians, most of us would say that we'd like this kind of life. We want to live this beautiful life, but we aren't willing maybe to do what it, what, what it takes to get it. I mean, just like most of us would want to be in better shape or maybe be at a certain weight, you know, the question that we have to ask is, am I really willing to cut back? Am I really willing to do the work to get there? And sanctification is a lot like fitness. There's an everyday aspect to it where we die to ourselves and our own will and we push it aside and for, our, for, 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 the, for God, you know, we, we, we seek God's will for our own. We, we pray and we ask Him to lead us and to keep us from sin. Again, Jesus wants us to hunger and thirst for this sort of life. And His vision for your life and mine is nothing less than total surrender and obedience to Him. And the good news is that He won't leave us on our own. The good news is that He has the help that we need. As Jesus said, I want you to seek His righteousness. Seek His kingdom and His righteousness. Ask Him to give you strength. You know, maybe even stop, you know, and pray right now, Lord, I've been trying to do this on my own. I've been trying to do so many things. I need your help. I need your work in me. I want to live for you in this world. God's will for your life and for my life is that we would pursue total obedience in everything that we do. And he expects nothing less. I mean, Jesus says, blessed are you. You will be blessed when you hunger for it. And his promise is attached to it when he says, and you'll be filled. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled, meaning he'll help. He has provided a way. He will help us. He will completely satisfy the hunger and thirst in us as we trust him. And so again, what's this hunger and thirst for righteousness? Well, Jesus declares it's a hunger for salvation accomplished for us in Jesus. That's what's most important. It's a hunger for obedience in everything that we do. And finally, it's a hunger for what we're going to call righteousness uh, for community or for our community or for our world. And this is a reminder that we can, that what we can do together, uh, this is a reminder of what we can do together as Christians and as a church because we're called to live in this world and not of this world. As Christians, Jesus shows us that we're here not to just simply blend in, but we're here to make a, a real difference. He called us to be salt and light. In this very same Sermon on the Mount, he reminded us to be people of both grace and truth. And part of hungering and thirsting for this righteousness means a a desire on our part to to see right done in the world. It's a hunger and a thirst for justice. And and this is where we look around and we see so much that is wrong and broken in our world. And we say, you know what, we want to see that fixed. And so for Christians, it means that when we see racism, we need to be the first to say, you know, that we love all people. That we demonstrate what it means to love every person, no matter their color. Uh, That when we see poverty, Christians look for ways to make sure that no one goes hungry. 
Uh, that when we see hatred and division, that we, we, we make the, the, you know, the, the commitment that we're going to be the peacemakers. That when we see needs in our community, like with this school supply drive that we're going to do right here in Noblesville, that as Christians and as a church, we give generously because we realize that we can never outgive God and what he has already given to us. This is where we recognize the difference that Christ-centered marriages can make and what it means to raise your kids to love the Lord. This is where we see the power of forgiveness and reconciliation at work and the impact that can have in all of our relationships, no matter the person. And it's the change we can bring as we do business honestly and fairly with all people. But there are challenges and there will be struggles. As Jesus says, we will clearly face as Christians and as a church. For example, on Friday, the Supreme Court ruled five to four that all states must now allow same-sex marriage. And honestly, this didn't come as a surprise, and we've all seen how public opinion has shifted and changed so rapidly uh, in a very relatively short period of time. And I know that even today, there are so many different opinions that are probably represented uh, in the room, and that's okay. Uh, we want Genesis to be a church where everyone is welcome, all people and that uh, we are seeking uh, the truth that's found for us in God's word, and that we are seeking Jesus together. Now, in light of what happened Friday, I think it's important for you to know what I believe and what our church uh, holds to be most uh, important on this matter, and also a little bit about where we go from here. For Genesis Church, God is our authority, and the word of God is our authority, and we hold to that word. And we know that we can't do anything apart from what God's word says and what he desires and wants for us. And we believe, as can be seen in creation in Genesis 1 and 2, that God made us male and female, and that he created marriage to be a unique union between one man and one woman. Now, the ruling on Friday and all that is certain to follow leaves us with a few choices as a church. One would be this. <clears throat> we could give up on truth and what the scriptures say as a way of avoiding conflict with our culture. And many churches are doing that today, and we're not going to take that path. We could also scream with outrage. Uh, we could reject the world. We could build walls around our homes and our church and our families and let the whole world go to hell for that matter. And some will do that. Some churches will make that choice. But to do that, I believe, means to reject the very commands of God and to give up on what he has called us to do in this world. And we're not going to do that either. But what I'm praying about and what I believe is that there's a third option. But I'll tell you that it's an option that's not without challenge and difficulty. And that is an option where we stand as Christians and as a church with conviction and kindness and compassion and grace and with truth. And our world is changing, but our God never changes. And he is still sovereign today. And our mission of helping people find their way back to God is still the same. And I think it's no accident that as we look at Jesus' words on hungering and thirsting for righteousness today, and, and that we're left to consider what this means for right now and what this means for tomorrow, for you and for me and for our church. I mean, where do we go from here? What does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness for our world and for our community right now? The first thing is this, I, I think it's a call to pray like we've never prayed before. To pray as individuals, to pray as a church. I mean, we must pray and ask God how to engage people, how to respond even to people who will certainly hate us for what we say we believe. We must pray and ask God how to love our friends, to love our neighbors, to love coworkers and family members and other students, even those that will disagree with us. 
the most important thing that we can do as a church, the most important thing that you can do as a follower of Christ is to pray every moment for every situation. The second thing is this, is to love our neighbors really, really well. We need to be all about love and compassion. We must pray and ask God to give us a heart of compassion so that we can be the first and the best at loving anyone that he puts into our lives. You know, Jesus was full of grace and truth. And that means that he wasn't just 50% grace and 50% truth, but he was 100% grace and he was 100% truth all at the same time. And for you and me, I think we can seek. I think we must live this very same way, but it's gonna be challenging and it's gonna be hard and there are gonna be times when it's really messy, but I'm praying that we will be able to love the people that Jesus puts into our lives, those people, every person that he has called us to love and do it without compromising the truth that he has revealed to us. And finally, I believe now more than ever, we have to commit ourselves as followers of Christ to righteousness, to right living. And this isn't an arrogant, self-righteous sort of a life, but a completely sold out life where we are fully dependent on him. That we look to his word to guide us for our lives. Now more than ever, we must seek to live our lives with such passion and love and obedience for God that our world will not be able to help but look at our lives and think to themselves, there's something different. There's something different about you. There's something that you have in your life and for your life that I want for my life too. To be people who pray, full of grace and full of truth, and we live for the Lord and for no one else. Let's pray. Let's do that right now. Uh, Father, we are seeking you, we are trusting you, and we know and we believe that you are sovereign, that you are on your throne, and that Jesus is not going back into the tomb. And uh, we love you. And uh, Father, we know that you despise sin, you despise my sin, you despise all of our sin. It's all equal in your eyes, and you've called us to a life of holiness and righteousness, first and foremost, that can only be found in Jesus. And I pray right now, as followers of Christ, we would, we would embrace uh, the truth of that righteousness for our lives. I pray for those that are here today that don't know that truth, Father, uh, that you would work in their heart, that they would see Jesus and what he's done for us and the difference that he can make uh, for us. And uh, Father, in this uh, rapidly changing world of ours, we know that we've lost some ground as a church, that we have made mistakes over and over and over again. We've gotten away from the heart of the gospel. We've gotten away from the mission that you have called us to. And so I pray right now, that you would raise our hearts, Lord, that you would raise our hopes and our desires and our prayers uh, to turn to you, to look to you, to live on mission once again. Lives where we pray, and we pray every day, and we are completely and absolutely dependent on prayer for our lives and for the people around us and for our world. Father, we pray that you would lead and guide us to love our neighbors and to love them very well. Uh, to love you with all of our heart and soul and mind, but as you do that work in us, we can't help but love and show compassion and grace to others. And that, Father, we'll live righteous lives. We will seek to live righteous lives, and not because we're better than anyone else. Again, my sin is just as ugly as anybody else's. But we want to commit our lives to living for you in this world according to your truth and your will and your desire for us, Father, as we put our faith and hope in you for all things. Lead us, lead our church, and change our world again to turn our eyes towards Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.
you know, it's a beautiful thing that we get to celebrate communion today uh, as a church, as one church with others who will do the same as we're reminded, here's what's most important, Jesus. His life, his death is most important for your life and for my life and for our church and for our world. And uh, we're reminded of what he's done for us uh, every time we take communion together. And so I'm going to invite our host team uh, to come forward right now. In just a moment, they're going to pass a tray down the aisle and uh, take the cup. You'll find that it's a cup that includes both the juice and the cracker, so take both of them. And uh, if you're in Christ, if you've trusted Jesus Christ with your life, we invite you uh, to take communion with us today, again, to remember and to celebrate that He will fill us, that as we hunger and thirst for Him, He will fill us, He will satisfy us, the life that we have in Him. And if you don't know Christ, uh, maybe you don't feel like you're in a place where you're ready to take communion today, uh, use this time intentionally. You know, use this time to even think about where you are right now and what it means that He died for you to forgive your sins so that you can live for Him uh, in this world. Uh, this time is yours. You take communion when we're ready and then we'll sing and celebrate together.